Anyway, it is good to be back, and it's good to be back on such a day as this when there are so many grave things to think about, and yet in your preaching plan uh, there is something so positive for today. And I was told that you have titled this passage Walking in Harmony. And that's a really good title. We're talking about harmonious relationships between men and women, husbands and wives, with their children and in the workplace. It's, it's a huge topic. We turn the spotlight of God's Word onto human relationships this morning. And I can only do a tiny bit of justice to it. In fact, I may well not get on to the workplace. We may not just have the time. A famous Baptist once said, when a home is ruled according to God's word, angels might stay with us, and they would not find themselves out of their element. Isn't that lovely? That's Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was married two children. The poet and hymn writer William Cooper, or Cowper, if you want to be precise, once said, the only part of paradise that survived the fall was the bliss of marriage. So what we're talking about, and he never married. In fact, he spent quite a lot of time in a lunatic asylum. But he did live with John Newton and his wife, and they kept him out of madness for many years when he, he wrote some of his beautiful hymns. So we're talking about a touch of heaven come down to earth. We're talking about angels being at home in our house. I wonder... How many angels reside in your front room or your bedroom? How many angels and archangels sit and listen and appreciate your conversation in your house and in mine? I would love to think that we had a heavenly host. You know, all the grades and degrees of angels and heavenly beings. But I'm not so sure. And I'm just going to remind you of some of the statistics for this nation, because they are highly relevant. The last year for which statistics are available from ONC is 2012, and the divorce rate in this country is running at 42% of the marriage rate. If you add the breakup rate amongst cohabiting couples, which is known to be far, far higher, that means that far more marriages are breaking up than kissing and making up when they run into trouble. If you look at the children, the stats show that 2,000 children a week, not a year, not a month, a week, see the home that they love broken up by divorce. If we add the children of cohabiting couples, that figure's going to be over 5,000 children a week. That's 250,000 children a year. If you extend that over 16 years, that's 4 million children. How many children are there under the age of 16 in this country? About 12 million. Do you know what that means? It means that one child in three under the age of 16 is going to see their family broken up. The cost, of course, in a multitude of ways, is absolutely huge. Educationally, spiritually, psychologically, financially... They reckon divorce alone costs the country about £44 billion a year. But let's leave that out. Just, just think about the family being the building block of society. The glue that unites us together as communities. 
It's under terrible, terrible stress at the moment. And I think of it, I did as I sat down to prepare. I I, I actually, I, I thought of what God thinks about what goes on down here. And the Spirit took me to Exodus 3, 7, where God says to Moses, I have heard the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard the crying out because of their slavery. And I am concerned about their suffering. I believe God is terribly concerned. And if the Almighty can have pain, then he has pain because of our suffering that we inflict on ourselves. And that's why, you see, that's why God has given such clear instructions for harmony. And and here, you've you've heard it read, and we'll, we'll be going over it. And the model, of course, for that loving harmony is Jesus himself. It's all here. And it starts in, right at the beginning. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. You know, that's one of the loveliest and one of the most unacceptable statements that the Apostle Paul ever made. It just sticks in our throat. Almost every word is wrong. Now, I'm looking at this from a worldly point of view. I'm looking at Christians, I know that, but you'll know what I mean. If, even if we start with the word wives... How many women actually don't want that title? They don't reject it. They don't like being called Mrs. They want to be called Ms. And that's what most of them look like a lot of the time, too. (laughs) They keep their maiden names, their professional names, or they they, they choose not to get married at all. And And then we have a generation of politicians. It started with a coalition. It's gone on with David Cameron himself. I have to name him. They're trying to redefine marriage so it's gender-free. If they had their way, the words husband and wife would become obsolete. And I don't know how they would refer to couples in in marriage or in relationships in, in legislation. It's been suggested if we go on this way much longer, husband and wife is going to vanish from the statute book. We're going to have, we won't even have the male partner and the female counterpart, or vice versa. We'll have something like two equal, undistinguishable parties to the party of the first party of the second. You know, it's going to become nonsense. Wives don't actually like that word, a lot of them. And then another bad word, submit. You know, this... (coughs) It's so resented because submit and the adjective submittive I I think conjures up someone who's subdued, maybe even spineless, certainly servile. If you're submissive, you know you're you're a doormat with a big word welcome on it. The word welcome says welcome and come and clean your boots on me. That's how we see submit. And then the head. As in, the husband is the head of the marriage. Headship is equated with rank, superiority, domination, power. If you go down that route, you end up thinking that 
marriage is a male invention for the com- comfort of men, don't you? And that's not so. It reminds me of that <coughs> lovely little story of a small boy who watched his wife do all the Monday morning washing and cleaning and working herself, and he turned to Daddy and said, Daddy, he said, uh, what did we used to do before Mummy came to work for us? <laughs> and you know, friends, it's not just the women who don't understand the headship principle, nor do we men. Yes, I, there are, and I know some, there are still Neanderthal husbands who sort of wield an imaginary club, and their contribution to a housework is, is, is lifting the foot while the wife hoovers underneath. But there aren't many of them. The main problem is we don't know how to lead women. Because often we haven't been taught. How can you be taught when one in three children are coming out of broken families? How can I be taught when my mum and dad divorced when I was eight? And I can remember now the shouting, the accusations, the recriminations, the bitterness, the pain, the grief, the sorrow, the poverty that followed. How, How could I learn how my father would lead my mother? Then my mother went on and married and got divorced again. And then my father married, but it it wasn't the same. Where's the modelling? Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I just want to point out that everyone seems to be blinded by this feminist thing, this formula of equality and jobs and income and status and childminding and chores. And some of that equality is good. I look at my sons-in-law, two lovely men of God, and they have a concept of helping in the family that I didn't grow up with. I mean, they do incredible things. They iron their shirts. And they'll go shopping voluntarily with their wives. And not always just for grace. I think shopping is the most boring exercise that was ever devised. And it's frustrating. I have a thing. If I go to a shop and I cannot find it in the first two and a half minutes, it's not there for me. I, 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 you know, that's it. But that's sometimes, that's, but sometimes it's very unhelpful for Jackie. Because she comes, she comes back struggling with huge, huge loads. And I realize my place is by her. So the modern man has learned in many ways to be more loving and caring. But often that's just in the peripherals. A few years ago, and we're still involved in it, I guess, Jackie and I got involved in something called focus questionnaires. You know, focus with two C's? I forget what it stands with, but basically it's a form of marriage preparation for youngsters. And you sit down with them and you take them through a 200 question questionnaire. And then you submit all the answers to um, a computer which sifts out, because they come in blocks of questions about sexuality, finance, family relationships. When you sort them out, you get a very clear idea of what these kids have made their minds up about is going to happen in their marriage. And when it comes to taking responsibility, who's going to lead on this? Who's going to have the bank account? Who's going to write the checks? Who's going to make the decisions? How much are you going to allow mother-in-law to speak into the family? All this comes to light. And then you sit down with the kids and say, the great news is, you share this, you share that. The bad news is, you haven't got a clue how to manage your finance. 
and you haven't even started to think about who leads who. And I think through focus we got a very clear idea of how, frankly, incompetent many youngsters are as they approach marriage. But the answer is here. But the trouble is, and this is, this is the awful bit, who is, let's look at context. Let us never examine the word of God without looking at context. In the context of the letter of the Ephesians, who is Paul writing to? Hmm? Tell me, shout it out, someone. It's there. You read it. The saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus greetings. He's writing to Christians, isn't he? Most of them are Gentiles, some of them are Jews. And if you look closer into the context, verse 18, just before where we started to read, he says, he says, be filled with the Spirit, speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then... Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The whole point about this teaching is that it is for Christians who truly love and believe the Lord Jesus Christ and who are filled with the Spirit. And if you are, you will understand it, you will take it to heart, and you will do your very best to obey it. And if what I bring you today irritates you, baffles you, intrigues you, but you can't understand it, or even worse, if you reject it, then, friend, it's not this that it's fault. It's what's in your heart. And I beg you not to think of me as a bloke who came and ranted a bit and and, and, and brought hard teaching about marriage. But take it to your home group leader. Take it to one of the church leaders and ask them to pray with you so that you have an understanding because this stuff is absolutely precious. Let's look at this word submission. The Greek word is hupotassine, and it does mean submit. But very interesting, you'll know this bit, you'll know this bit, you'll know, you'll have heard, you'll have heard it preach. Where it says just in the preceding verse, be filled with the Spirit, that's a continuous aorist tense. That means don't just go and top up, it means go on being filled continuously, 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 always be filled with the Spirit. Hupotassine here is in the same tense. It doesn't mean submit on Monday and then something happens, but you've got to submit again on Tuesday, and then, yes, you've got to submit. It's not a series of events. It's a constant process. It's not an action, an event. It's an attitude of submission, of loving submission. It's a willing, I've written, it's a willing conscious attitude of the heart. And what exactly does it mean? If I submit to you, if I submit to, to, my, to my dear wife, I put your interests, your happiness, your health, your protection, far above mine. I care about those things for myself, but always I'll consider yours first. And I, I think here of the Jewish concept of shalom, which is far, far broader than peace. It's, it's your perfect well-being in matters of money, of health, of sexuality, of family relationships, of career, of fulfillment, above all in your relationship with God. It's everything. I'll put your everything before mine. I'll try to. That will be my priority. 
And, and in doing that, I, I risk nothing, I lose nothing, because my wife will do the same for me. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. And then this headship word. It's not about rank. It's not about pecking order. It's not about power. The husband and the wife are entirely equal in the sense in the sight of God. Well, you know what I think Galatians 3.28 means. Now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, man nor woman, male nor female, slave nor free, all are one in Christ Jesus. There is a, of course there's a difference. But the difference is one of roles, not of rank. The husband provides leadership. He provides protection. He provides cover, not by domineering, but by cherishing. I love this quote by the Bible commentator Matthew Henry. The woman was made out of Adam's side. She was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to read that again. The woman was made out of Adam's side. She was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. And you see, the rationale, that the beautiful explanation that makes sense of all this and makes it possible, is in verse 24. As the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit their husbands to their husbands in everything. Paul says six times in these verses, one way or another, that the relationship of the husband and the wife together is that of Jesus to the church. I can remember when I first came across this, this, this idea years ago, I got it all wrong. I thought Paul was in the middle of this powerful explanation about marriage and he looked around for an example, some sort of analogy to drive it home. He thought, oh, that's a good one. I'll put that down. And then I realised later, that's it. That, that was nonsense. I was, I was crazy. But, you, of course, Paul does that with the family. He uses that brilliant metaphor of the physical body for the family of God. Well, the Holy Spirit would have given him that one as well. But in this case, I am convinced that Jesus himself sees our marriage as the most precious thing. And he has consciously elevated it to a level that we would never dream of for ourselves. And that was Jesus who put this into Paul's mind. That the only possible analogy is this mystical union of Christ with his church. You see, it was so utterly foreign in that day as it is foreign in our day. 
Do you know what a regular prayer was that Jewish men made? Oh God, I thank you I was not made a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. If, if you actually look at the rabbinical um, teachings, you realize that within marriage, a woman had absolutely almost no rights at all. A husband could almost divorce his wife for anything, theoretically. Great Rabbi Akiva, Akiva said that <coughs> if he, she didn't please him, if she prepared the food the wrong way consistently, he could divorce her. You know, we can get a bit blown away by the Song of Songs. I tell you, that, that's an extraordinary piece of, of, of erotic spiritual and physical writing. It, it, it didn't run for most of the Jewish nation for hundreds and hundreds of years. Look, look at the other side of the tracks, is it? Well, what were they doing in Rome? What were they doing in Greece? I mean, their concept of marriage was absolutely dismal. Do you know that we can read in places like Seneca of women who've been married 23 or 24 times? We read of one woman who said, I get married, so in order that I can get divorced again. And I get divorced so I can get married again. I, I, I needn't go into the morality of ancient Rome. The Greeks were a little bit better, but not much. So, the teaching that comes out of this chapter in those days was absolutely dynamite, electrical. And Jesus' concept of marriage lays huge responsibility on us as husbands and as wives because the concept is so much higher than anything you'll learn anywhere else. You'll have noticed that actually... To wives is a single instruction. But this isn't a huge rubric. It simply says, in all things, submit to your husband as to the Lord. The husbands get a double instruction. They've got to submit and they've got to love. And if you actually count up the verses, their instruction is three times as long. So, fellas, there's a huge responsibility on us. And I just, I just want to drive that home by, by showing you out of verses 25 to 31 what sort of love was it that Jesus showed to the church because that's the love that you and I, friend, have got to show our wives. So very quickly, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's a sacrificial love. It puts her and your family before yourself. And, and Christ, let's not forget, when we talk about Christ's sacrifice, we often just think of, great our love hath no man, and of course that means Calvary, yes, he died. He didn't just die for people, he lived a sacrificial life every day of his life. It's a cleansing love. Because it says... Christ loved the church and gave himself to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. He cleansed her by introducing baptism and through the teaching of the word. Jewish brides, before they approached the Kiddushim, the marriage ceremony, went to the mikvah, the ritual baths, and they cleansed themselves. Greek brides did the same. They went to some spring that was sacred to some 
god or goddess. And, and so they cleanse themselves. And Paul is saying that just as Jesus cleansed his bride, so the Christian husband is responsible for her spiritual welfare, her cleansing, so that she should be presentable to God as at the altar, radiant, with no stain or wrinkle. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it a huge responsibility as head of your family, as priest in your family, so that your wife grows with you, cleansed of guilt, of the past, finding her own ministry, finding her own way, finding her own relationship with God, radiant with no stain or wrinkle. And then in verse 28, it says, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. I think that's a tender, caring love, caring as much for her as yourself. Anyone read Gary Chapman and the Five Languages of Love? One, two, three. Like it? Loved it. Loved it? Learned from it? Great. Can you remember what the five languages of love are? <coughs> Thank you. Just, just for those who didn't hear, um, Gary Chapman is... Uh, is an American Christian psychologist, I think, and counsellor. And back in the 1990s, he, he came up with this, the, 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 this idea that each of us communicates and outwards receives and gives love in a... <coughs> in a excuse my coughing, I have a little sinusitis this morning. Um, that we receive in a particular way, and those, those ways are... He, he classified as acts of service, words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, and physical love. And I don't argue with that. We have a great friend down Totnes Way who, who actually lectures on Christian communications in, in schools. And he does a good job of it. Chris Grimshaw has a particular thing about dishwashers because he's deeply into um, acts of service. He says... No man who loves Jesus... Well, no, I'm I'm paraphrasing. He says, no man who loves his wife should pass the dishwasher in the morning without opening up to see if it's full of dirty stuff or not. And if it's full of dirty stuff, he should certainly turn it on before he goes to work. It's full of clean stuff, he should take it out. Okay, I started something there. I'm not not meaning to knock it, but I I think there's there's a tiny item in, 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 in Gary Chapman that... It's, it, it's fine where your beloved itches and then scratch it. And that's important. But I'd, I'd like just to say that there's something deeper. I would go for words like empathise. Try and see things, husbands from your wife's point of view, what, what counts, what matters to them, what is, what's bugging them, what's upsetting them. Try and think inside their box. I, I would talk about trust. And how much you share, we really should be able to share almost everything, shouldn't we? Sometimes we can't. For 30 years of my life, I was a consultant pathologist. I wasn't a consultant for 30 years. But I used to come home with sights and things I'd seen, and Jackie would say, had a bad day, darling? I said, you betcha. Want to talk about it? No, thank you. Not that I didn't want to talk about it, but I just 
couldn't lay that on. It wasn't, it wasn't right. There are things that, in other words, that, that cannot be shared in marriage, but where trust isn't given and received, you know, you, 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 lose, you, you lose a huge opportunity to take that relationship deeper in, in trust. And I also wrote down forbearance. Every time I think that, in my mind, I'm, I'm critical, I think, hey, hold on, how can I think that of her when, look at my fault. It's the, it's the plank in the eye, really. It's the plank in the eye. I believe that my wife puts up with a lot more in me than, than I would be prepared to put up with her. Bit difficult with her sitting here, you know. Okay. <laughs> I said, don't go for at any point. And finally, 31. I love this bit. Verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. A Christian marriage run on these lines is an unshakable, breakable love because it is one flesh. It is in union with Christ. Such marriage, friends, is safe from shipwreck. Sometimes in in marriage ceremonies, when I've been asked to do the address, I, I talk about the young couple coming together and forming an isosceles triangle. You know, that's a triangle with two long equal sides. There's the point, there's the apex, there's Jesus up there, there's two long sides and there's the man and there's the woman and the higher that they elevate Jesus in their lives the higher and the taller, the deeper their worship up it goes the smaller the distance between them comes in proportion do you see, it's a lovely picture and that's what we're talking about that's what we're talking about union together because of union in Christ Someone once wrote, to know that we are loved unconditionally. This is, sorry, a definition of security is to know that we are loved unconditionally by at least one other person. (coughs) And for a Christian, that should be two other people. Jesus and your spouse, your husband and your wife. I I, I think that any woman who's loved with that kind of sacrificial cleansing, tender, caring, unshakable, breakable love, why would she not want to be submitted? Why would she not say amen and amen? Well, the same principle and spirit is carried into our relationship with our children. That's what the first few verses of chapter 6 says. You know, children are naturally self-centered little rebels, Someone once said that grandchildren are God's prize to us for not killing our children. Which is a thought. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord. We're talking again about taking our relationship with Jesus and extending it to our our parents, and it's a loving, submissive relationship. <coughs> it's right that they obey their children, because after all, they, you know, that is right. Children are immature. They don't, cannot always distinguish right from wrong. They need to obey. Later, they will come to obey and honour, as the word says. And honour means respect, love, 
heeding. Uh, if you've been to other societies, Africa for instance, you will see how older parents are greatly honoured and respected. They're not over here much. I just thought for lightly, if I've just got time for this, what is a grandparent? Some quotes from papers written by a class of eight-year-olds. Grandparents don't have to do anything except be there when we come to see them. They're so old, they shouldn't play hard or run. If it's good, they drive us to the shops and give us money. A six-year-old was asked where her grandma lived. Oh, she said, she lives at the airport, and when we want to, we just go and get her. <laughs> then when we're done having her visit, we'll take her back to the airport. <laughs> Got a little bit better. When they take us for walks, they slow down past things like pretty leaves and caterpillars. They show them to us and talk about the colour of the flowers and also why we shouldn't step on cracks. And they never say, hurry up. When they read to us, they don't skip. They don't mind if we ask the same story over and over again. Finally, everyone should try to have a grandmother, especially if you don't have television, because they're the only grown-ups who like to spend time with us. <laughs> Sweet, but not very respectful, I suggest. But then grandchildren can get away with almost anything. So, it does also say fathers do not exasperate your children. And that, that always kind of, I had to really research this a little bit. King James Version says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. And I wondered why. And I think the Lord is reminding us about things like being unfair, unreasonable with children taking too much or too little for granted, overbearing, discouraging. And think of some of the fathers in the Old Testament. Isaac and Esau, Jacob and Joseph, above all David, King David and Absalom. That they, they all pampered their children. They failed to discipline them or to discipline the right way and the results were horrendous. The agony in the latter part of David's reign. Do not exasperate your children but love them, and again, in a way, submit to them, but you've got to be careful because sometimes what they think is right for them, of course, isn't at all right for them, and you have to use your maturity. And then finally, work-place relationships. What a mess. What a mess we're in even today. We've tried the trades union movement. We've tried good employment laws. We've tried strikes, stands-offs. We tried education, it is still a mess. And you look down over capitalist society and you see such greed, you see corporations like Volkswagen indulging on criminal activity on a huge scale. You see such, such poor trust and faith in the products and the service. You know, we need an Ephesians solution for the workplace. And it's all that. I haven't got time to go into it. You will appreciate, you'll have heard this before, for slaves, substitute employees. The principles are exactly there. I'm just going to turn you back to Ephesians 1 because in it, right at the beginning, Paul says 
that this, really, the solution for our marriages, our children, and our employment in the workplace is here in verses 9 and 10. With all wisdom and understanding, he, God, has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And the glorious thing, friends, is it is going to happen because Jesus is coming again. Amen. And he's coming soon. And we're going to be prepared for it. Amen. And when he does, what we look on as a set of instructions that are impossibly hard to follow are going to be the norm. Everything's going to be brought together in unity under our Lord Jesus Christ. Families. Can you imagine that? A nation in which all families are at one and loving and kind and good, where all children know their place. But I don't mean in a dominated way, I mean their rightful place. And they too are exercising their spiritual gifts and blessing their parents instead of being a nightmare to them. Where the workplace, for you men and many of you, is a place of joy to go to. Because there's a unity and a harmony as you walk in through the door that you'll just say, praise God, I've got another day. Thank you, Lord.